one of the hallmarks of ministry is something called mission trips. Mission trips. We usually take youth on mission trips. We have adult volunteers that give a, a week of their time to travel somewhere with the youth of a church. And the idea is um, connecting with people either locally, sometimes globally, internationally, and doing service work. I have been on more mission trips than I can count. I've been all over the United States. I've been to Europe. I've been to Central America. I've traveled all over the place on mission trips. I think in a large part it helped lead me to become a pastor. You spend that much time serving other people, you want to continue to be part of that good work. So when I became a pastor, we decided at my first church to take a group of middle schoolers to West Virginia. We went from Stan to West Virginia. We're going to spend a week uh, in West Virginia. We're going to be doing some modest home repair, that kind of stuff. Now, for those of you who have been on a mission trip before, it's, it's usually pretty likely that the people you serve are, are not really like you. If you're younger, you happen to wind up serving someone older. If you're older, you kind of serve someone younger. If you're white, you wind up serving someone who's black. If you're black, you wind up serving someone who's white. It just kind of happens that the person you encounter is very different than you. So we had this group of middle schoolers, and I had three middle school boys. And if you know middle school boys, they smell like Axe body spray all the time. And so we, we go to this house that we're going to spend a whole week working on, and we, we knock on the door, and... The person who opens it is a middle school age boy with his brother who also happens to be in middle school and his other brother who happens to be at the tail end of elementary school. So I've got three boys from my church and we're going to serve and we're going to be living and working in a house that also has three boys around the same age. Very rare. This doesn't happen very often. So we walk in and we meet the mother and the father. The, the mother is expecting. She's going to be having a baby pretty soon. And we look around. And the floors are horrible. Splintered wood sticking up everywhere. All I can think of is a baby crawling on this splintered floor. We go into the bathroom. There's a hole that you can see that goes to the subfloor. Water's not running in half the house. Electricity's not working in half the house. So we realize we have our work cut out for ourselves. So I grab my middle school boys and I, I give them duties, you know, different jobs that they have to work on. And I'm trying to supervise, make sure they don't slam a hammer through their thumb and all that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, I'm trying to make sure that the house is somewhat safe for not only the baby that's going to come, but also for these middle school and elementary school boys. We work all week, and of course, every day that we work more, these boys who live there, they start coming up to me, and they say, hey, can we, can we help? See, so, yeah, buddy, this is your house. You grab a hammer. I'll give you something to do. And so we soon went from three boys working on it to six boys working on the house. And we got done so quickly, we were able to paint the walls, which we weren't planning to do. We were able to fix their front steps, which we weren't planning to do because we had all this extra work. Now, lunchtime is a hallowed time on mission trips because you're hungry and you want to eat. You kind of just want to be quiet because you've been working all day and talking all day. But this week, I could not get any of these boys to shut up because all they wanted to do is talk. They had the same interests. They were excited about the same things. They were running around the front yard, throwing the football, kicking the soccer ball, on and on and on and on. And then our last day, our very last day, I was eavesdropping on a conversation between one of the boys who lived in that house and one of the boys from my church. And the boy who lived in the house looked at the boy from my church and he said, why are you doing this? I mean, this is your summer break. Why did you come to West Virginia to do this? And so I leaned in a little closer because I couldn't wait to hear what the boy was going to say. You know what he said? Because I follow Jesus. Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. 
James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the Thunder Brothers, they came forward to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they replied, Lord, we are able. And then Jesus said to them, The cup I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them, but their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Would you please pray with me? In the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, there was an incident at a prestigious university a number of years ago, perhaps the same prestigious university where I went to seminary. I'm not going to tell you where that was, but there was an incident that happened at this prestigious university where one fall day they discovered a beggar sitting on the steps in front of the school of law. A beggar asking for help. Now the next week, the university was surprised to discover that the beggar was back, though this time he wasn't at the school of law. This time he was sitting on the steps leading into the school of medicine. Another week passed, and this same beggar, bloodied, bruised, was sitting on the steps that lead into the seminary, into the divinity school. Well, the university had had enough of this. They were going to put this to a stop. You can't have beggars on a pristine-looking campus. They were going to stop it, so they told the college and campus police that if they saw him, to arrest him and to get him off the property. So the next week, they discovered the beggar walking around one more time, and as the campus police surrounded this beggar, he began to plead with them, and he removed his outer coat, he took off his wig, removed his fake beard, and he produced a student ID card. He was getting his PhD in sociology, and he was conducting an experiment on campus. After all, he had a pretty decent set of variables to work with, a lot of people kind of around the same status, but he was trying to figure out and discern if people of different academic disciplines are more or less inclined to help someone in need. So he set up shop at different parts around the university because he wanted to find out if what you study changes how you help people. So months later, his, his research pro project it got published and the university was kind of all up in a buzz about what he found because while he was in front of the law school, countless students offered to give him money but that's it. In front of the School of Medicine, a fair number of them offered to help clean him up, to help him be better, and even to escort him over to the university hospital. But while he sat in front of the Divinity School, not a single student stopped to help him. Nor did any single professor in the seminary stop to help him. 
The only thing they offered was excuses. In fact, the only person who stopped in front of the divinity school was a janitor who risked losing his job to make sure that the beggar would be okay. James and John, the Thunder Brothers, they are, uh, to use a theological term, dumb as a box of rocks. <laughs> Jesus teaches them about the mysteries of God. He gives them miraculous food to eat when they see nothing but scarcity. Jesus even spells out the whole death and resurrection business, the exodus for the rest of us. I mean, these are as literally as he can make it clear to these idiots. And they approach the Lord and they say, we would like cabinet positions in the kingdom of God. These fools have God in the flesh who's told them what glory is that it comes in weakness and still they are out of their league. They have no idea what they're doing. They blurt out this, this desire. Hey, JC, um, it's all good and fine. You can talk about the Son of Man stuff. We, we like that. But can we talk about what it's going to be like when it's all over? When you have power? We want to know what it's going to mean for me. And Jesus, like a good rabbi, answers the question with a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And they sing that great hymn. Lord, we are able, our spirits are thine. He says, okay, you idiots. I just want to make sure we're clear then about what that means. Because remember, I'm in the death and resurrection business. I'm here to turn the world upside down. So pay attention as I remind you for the 50th time. If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be great, you have to be the least. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Do you understand? James, John, all the rest, they want glory, they want power, they want prestige, because they are just like us. They are looking for the easiest way to the top in the shortest amount of time with the least amount of resistance. But glory... Glory, according to the strange new world of the Bible, is not how we often imagine it. We might imagine the, the corner office or the perfect stock portfolio or kids who actually listen to us are going to seminary so people will call you reverend and treat you with respect one day. But this is how Jesus describes glory. The Son of Man, God in the flesh, serving humanity from the hard wood of the cross, rectifying the sins of all who seek glory by the wrong means for the wrong reasons. At the end of the day, it's important to remember that the gospel, what we call good news, is a story. It's not a self-help program. It's not a textbook with steps to salvation. It's not a program for perfect morality. It's a story. Actually, it's the story that re-narrates all the rest of ours. Because whenever we enter this strange new world of the Bible, it's impossible to miss that it's a journey. The whole thing is a journey. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end, which is, in fact, just a new beginning. And like most journeys, we know we have somewhere to go, but we never really know what we're going to encounter along the way. Now, that's the, it's true of the disciples then. It's true of disciples now. Disciples follow Jesus. But we don't really know a whole lot more than that. It's a strange and wondrous thing following Jesus. It's strange because we don't know what we're going to encounter, but it's wondrous because we know that Jesus is with us the whole time. So we ask these things in church. Well, what are the marks of discipleship? What are the marks of faith today? Do you have to be baptized? Do you have to have perfect Sunday worship attendance? Do you have to tithe to your church? Do you have to spend one day every week serving somebody else? You know, Jesus 
Jesus never says to his disciples, you have to have these five spiritual disciplines to be a disciple, or you must do this, or he says, follow me. Merely follow me. Whatever our faith may be, whatever it might look like, it is found in the following. It's not about having an emotional response to the Spirit or making some sort of proclamation about Jesus' lordship, though those things can and probably should happen. But they are not discipleship. They are not good news. In the end, to be a disciple is really nothing more than stumbling and fumbling behind Jesus on the road of life, going from one adventure to the next adventure with the safe and secure knowledge that he's with us. You know, we never really choose to be Christians. It's something that kind of just happens to us. I've never not been a Christian. I was baptized when I was 19 days old. Spent nearly every Sunday of my life in church. There's never been a time that I wasn't a disciple. But even for those who come to faith later in life, we do so not by making a decision for Jesus. We do so because something happens to us. And then one day we find ourselves in a place like this. Now that something has a name. Jesus. Jesus happens to us on the roads of life and we discover that we're caught up in a journey that we might not ever choose for ourselves on our own, which when you think about it is actually hilariously good news. It's really, really good news because it means the church has room for those with tremendous faith and for those with tremendous doubts. The church has room for those who feel like they're on top of the world and for those who feel like they're down in a ditch. It means the church is a journey. It's an adventure in which we're always going on to the next thing. But of course, there are signposts like any journey, one things that help us to know that we're on the right path or that we're at least moving in the right direction. So to be caught up in this journey, this adventure we call faith, it means imitating the one we follow. That is, we learn by having repetition, by habit, by practice. It's why we have church Sunday after Sunday. It's not a, you do it one time and you're good forever. We're always in the habit of learning more about the one that we follow. That's why Jesus, I think, is forever telling stories. Now, these stories Jesus tells are not some esoteric conception that college freshmen debate in Philosophy 101. His stories, instead, are centered in the muck and the mire of life. They're about things like anger and justice and disappointment and fear and money and relationships and forgiveness. You know, the things we all deal with every day. It's these stories that become the habits around which our lives are made intelligible. Jesus' stories are always about himself. And if we take seriously that we now are Christ's body for the world, then they're also stories about us. So here's a parable I heard recently. There's a barber who, every day after cutting people's hair for money, he goes to a hospital for mentally challenged people and he cuts their hair for free. Now, a friend of his is an accountant who, after a long day of serving people's financial interests, he goes out at night to cruise local bars, to pick up women for one-night stands, to enjoy himself as much as possible. Now, both men, the barber and the accountant, are Christians. Both of them are apprentices. They are people attached to a larger vision of what life is all about, about why we're here. Now, one of them is really attached to Jesus. The other is attached to only to himself. So the question for us isn't, well, what do you believe in 
The question instead is, whom do you follow? Faith is in the following. Jesus says to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. When we respond to that call, it means that Jesus is going to take us places, places that we might not ever choose to go were it up to us. Flannery O'Connor said that most people come to the church by means the church does not allow, else there would be no need they're getting to her at all, which is just another way of saying that Jesus meets us where we are, not where we ought to be. But then when Jesus meets us, he takes us somewhere else. Now that journey might look like spending a week during your summer in West Virginia working on a house. It might mean spending a couple hours on a Saturday morning down in the fellowship hall of a church helping to sell gently used items so that money can go to the next generation ministry. It might mean coming on Thursday nights and offering your gift of guitar or voice or keyboard or drums so that you can practice and then make a joyful noise to the Lord on Sunday. It might look like sitting in the back of a church on Sunday morning, pressing knobs and levers to make sure everybody can hear the good news. It might mean running the cameras so that people on the internet can see and hear the good news. I mean, we might not ever pick these things were it not for the fact that Jesus picks us. It might be something we haven't even thought of yet. If you have an idea for a ministry, tell me about it. I want to know. I want to find new and exciting ways for us to all respond to what God is doing in our lives so that others can help be part of this vision. Rejoicing in the good news. If it's guided by grace, if it's moved by mercy, if it's filled with faith, then it's probably part of the journey. And what we do in service of other people, what we otherwise call discipleship, whether we're volunteering with a local organization or we're helping the church to bring a new vision to life, all these things, they form us while we're doing them. Discipleship, then, isn't something we ever finish. Discipleship is always an adventure because there's always more to do. And that's why it's so fun. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.